fallen world, so life can be difficult. It can be more difficult when you follow Jesus. Some will tell you that for Christians it ought to be different. There were thousands of people at Yankee Stadium last night who were hearing that message. And that message is a lie. The reality is that Christians will often lead more difficult lives because not only are we a part of humanity, fallen people living in a fallen world, but we are also disciples of Jesus Christ. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are accountable to our Lord for living faithful lives. And we're promised that if we do live faithful lives, then we will experience greater hardship. We will experience opposition. We will experience difficulty. So we've got all the normal problems of life and then some because we love Jesus. Now, in this passage we're going to examine this morning, we, we find Paul facing these same realities, and he's answering a question for us. Why suffer? Why sacrifice? Why pursue holiness? We can use the phrase that Paul uses in verses 12 and verse 14 to summarize all those questions. Why press on? The whole idea of pressing on implies that the life Paul has chosen and the life that we have chosen, if we are in Christ Jesus, will not be an easy one. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to press on. We'd just wake up every morning and every day would be wonderful and easy, and we'd just glide through life. No pressing necessary. But Paul says that he is committed to pressing on no matter what the hardship, no matter what the obstacle, no matter the suffering, no matter the sacrifice. And when I read that, the question that comes to my mind is, why? Why press on? Why not just live like everyone else does? Why burden myself with the additional challenges of discipleship? That's really what Paul is telling us in this passage. He's giving us an answer to that question, and it's really quite a simple answer. Why should we press on? We ought to press on, Paul says, because Jesus is worth it. We ought to endure all of the difficulties and hardships of this life because Jesus is worth it. It's not very complicated, really. Jesus is worth it. Worth what? Worth anything and everything. We ought to press on because Jesus is worth all the sacrifice and all the suffering that may come to us as we seek to live faithful lives of discipleship. Now that's easy to say, but here's the reality. There are those who name the name of Christ who do not treasure Christ. There are those who will consider themselves to be followers of Christ as long as it doesn't cost them anything. When it doesn't entail sacrifice or suffering. So that's the difference between those who have come to treasure Christ and those who say they believe in him but have not really come to that place where they treasure him above all else. And that's 
the end goal of discipleship, isn't it? To love Christ above all else and be willing to suffer and sacrifice no matter what he calls us to suffer. It all comes down to what Paul says about himself there in verse 8. There in verse 8, Paul talks about the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And that's the answer. Why do some treasure Christ more than others? It's because they know him better. The more you know him, the more you will treasure him. So Paul says that he presses on because Jesus is worth it. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Can we too know Christ in such a way that we, as well as Paul, will press on because having known him, we treasure him? Well, in this passage, Paul gives us a number of ways to press on. So that in pressing on, we might know Christ, and that in knowing Christ, we might treasure him. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to temper your expectations a bit. You know, when you go somewhere to preach, you want to make a good impression. And there are temptations that come with that. There's a temptation to try to impress people with something new to try to give them something they've never heard before. But I want you to know, as we begin, I've got nothing new for you. There's nothing new and novel that I'm going to say this morning. And the reason I've got nothing new and novel for you is because what I do have for you are the words which the Apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to the church at Philippi. That's not new by any stretch. That's not novel by any definition. So rather than new and novel, what I have for you this morning is old and well-worn. We might say tried and true. But the interesting thing about this is that what Paul has to say was not even new and novel to the Philippians. In fact, when Paul writes to them, And you see this in verse 1. He comes right out and tells them that he's just repeating things that he's already taught them. He says there in the second sentence in verse 1, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Brothers and sisters, we need to get over our infatuation with novelty. Over and over again, the biblical authors tell those to whom they write that they are doing nothing more than reminding them of things which they already know, or at least should know, things they've already been taught. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. And as a preacher, that's very comforting. It means that my job is not to come up with something new every week. It means I've been entrusted with a deposit of truth once for all delivered to the saints. And my job is simply to remind God's people of what has already been taught from the beginning. It's interesting. You know, it's very difficult, and I'm sure you, you, you've noticed this. 
It's very difficult to find any kind of entertainment which is comfortable for a Christian. You turn on the TV, and there's, you, know, you start watching something, and say, oh, man, here we go again, right? There's just the profanity and the sexuality, and there's, it's just so difficult. So, you know, my wife and I have kind of taken to going back and watching older shows. Last week, we were watching the show from England. It's a British show from the BBC, actually. And it's about this Church of England vicar who joins forces with the local police inspector to solve murders in their little village. And the first thing that really strikes you is, why are there so many people being murdered in this little village? But it seems every week there's another murder they have to solve. The thing that struck me as we began to watch this was at some point in the episode, this, this guy sits down at his typewriter, because this takes place back in the 50s, and he puts paper in the typewriter and he types out the word sermon. And then he just sits there. Because he's waiting for something to come from within himself. There's no Bible there on the desk next to him. And this becomes very clear when, at the end of the episode, they show a little snippet of his so-called preaching, and there's nothing there. And I'm, I'm watching this, and I cannot think of anything more terrible than to have to come up with a sermon from inside of me, just out of my own mind. When we come to the Word of God, brothers and sisters... That takes all the pressure off preachers. Because I don't have to come up with something to preach. I've been given a deposit of truth to preach. And so, as I know you receive every week, you get a meal from the Word of God. You get the Word which God has spoken. This is how things happen at Red Mills. Every week, we just go to the next passage. Amen? Whatever God has said, that's what we're going to deal with. And this morning, we're going to deal with what God has said here in Philippians chapter 3. Paul wants us to remember things. And the first thing he wants us to remember, so that we will treasure Christ as we should, is to press on in joy. Because Jesus is worth it. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, Paul tells us two things in this first verse. We've already mentioned one of them. Right? The second thing he tells us is, is that he's reminding us of these things. We are to remember. But the first is to rejoice. As we press on, we do so rejoicing. And that may seem strange, after all, we've just been speaking about all of the difficulties of the Christian life. How does joy fit into hardship? 
Well, if we understand what the scripture teaches about joy, then we understand that joy and hardship are not mutually exclusive, and they are not incompatible, and that to even ask that question is to reveal a misunderstanding of Christian joy. Some confuse joy with happiness, with some kind of emotional euphoria, This made its way into the culture in a number of ways. Some of you will be old enough to remember the creator of the Peanuts comic strip and his 1960s definition of happiness. Happiness, he said, is a warm puppy. I've got nothing against puppies unless they bark too much. But if you're confusing that definition of happiness with Christian joy, you're way off the mark. Later in the 80s, uh, Singer named Bobby McFerrin came out with a catchy little tune entitled, Don't Worry, Be Happy, as if happiness is simply an act of the will. Just to give you a sample, here's one typical line. Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry, be happy. Song lyrics often sound ridiculous when you read them, don't they? Now, as as Christians, we ought not worry. But there's a reason why we don't worry that never finds its way into that song. We don't worry not because we ignore the difficulties around us. We don't worry because we are held in the hand of a sovereign God and we trust in him. I was talking about this with my co-elder last week, and he reminded me that there are fewer and fewer of us who remember the 60s or even the 80s. So here's one a little more recent. 2013, Pharrell Williams came out with a song called Happy. Really not much to it lyrically, but one line did jump out at me, and it was this. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. I don't even know what that means. But I do know that happiness is not the truth. Jesus is the truth. But however one wants to define happiness, it is not Christian joy. When we talk about Christian joy, we're talking about something that is unique and not at all incompatible with the hardships of life. In fact, John Calvin wrote this, There is nothing in afflictions which ought to disturb our joy. Now, if he's right, and I think he is, then joy cannot be understood as the absence of affliction. Rather, joy is something which is present in the midst of affliction. Just as the world has an improper view of joy, so does much of the church. We ought not confuse Christian joy with the kind of lightness and levity which so often characterizes the contemporary church. I wasn't there inside Yankee Stadium last night, but I have no doubt that what went on there is a good example of this. Christian joy is something far deeper if the lightness and the levity of the contemporary church can be compared to a paper boat bouncing along with the flow of the water, changing direction with every ripple, with don't worry, be happy playing in the background. True Christian joy 
can be likened to a rock which sits unmoved, impervious to the flow of the water around it, anchored deep and strong into the earth beneath the river's flow. The river is there. The river is doing what it does. But unlike the paper boat, the rock stands unaffected. So it is in regard to our joy. The world flows by all around it. The rapids break against it every now and then. A log that has fallen into the river will crash against it. But the rock stands firm because beneath all the tumult taking place on the surface, it is rooted in the solid ground beneath. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And you find there the key difference between Christian joy and the poor substitutes put forth by the world and so much of the church. Christian joy doesn't derive from an act of the will, nor does it arise out of the emotional manipulations of sight and sound, nor does it manifest itself in our hearts as a result of a Christianized motivational speech. True Christian joy is rooted and grounded in the Lord. He is our source. He is our sustainer. Now, as you may know, joy is a key theme throughout this epistle to the Philippians. In chapter 4, verse 4, for example, Paul exhorts us to rejoice in the Lord always, which doesn't leave a lot of room for not rejoicing. This is a command, an imperative of Scripture. Here then is the key, worldly joy and false Christian joy are based upon that which changes. Situations change, influences change, emotions change, but true Christian joy is based upon that which is unchanging. The Christian is always in the Lord and the Lord is always in the Christian and that is always reason for joy. Even if the Christian cannot rejoice in circumstances, if he finds himself passing through pain, sorrow, grief, he can still rejoice in Christ. We rejoice, Paul says, in the Lord. Since he never leaves us or forsakes us, we rejoice always. And so Paul says that we are to press on in joy. Why? Because Christ is worth it. We rejoice and we remember. And in that joy and in that remembrance of what we have been taught, Paul says there is safety. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. It is Paul's concern for the safety of the Philippian believers, which now leads him into a discussion of the next thing we are to remember when it comes to pressing on. We are to remember to press on in wariness, because Jesus is worth it. Verse 2 says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. And Paul's shift in tone and topic from rejoice in the Lord to beware of the dogs seems pretty abrupt, doesn't it? But throughout this epistle, Paul is constantly shifting his focus between positive and negative. And this is another one of those instances. 
Paul warns the Philippians to beware of certain people, and he describes them in the harshest terms. Dogs, evil workers, false circumcision, or more literally, mutilation. What's interesting about the terms that Paul uses to describe these opponents of the gospel is that these descriptions tie the Judaizers, those who are coming into the church seeking to convince people to come back under the law, it ties the Judaizers to paganism. In the ancient world, most dogs were not pets. They were street scavengers. They would take whatever scraps they could find from the stinking garbage heaps, including dead carcasses, which was, of course, anathema to a Jew. The second phrase describes them as evil workers. Though they claimed to be doers of the law, they were actually doers of evil, just as Saul had been before he, before he came to Christ, when he persecuted the church of Christ. And finally, Paul describes them as the mutilation, the false circumcision. They wanted to impose circumcision on Gentiles, but by denying the means of circum- the, the, by denying the meaning of circumcision as God intended, as a sign of the righteousness that is received by faith, their circumcision became no different than the mutilation practiced by the pagans who slashed their bodies in an attempt to get the attention of their gods. And so Paul's using these phrases to turn the tables on the Judaizers and to warn the church that what the Judaizers think themselves to be actually stands in contrast to the truth of God and puts them in the same position as the pagan. Now, you'll note that as we move from verse 2 to 3, we find Paul moving from his warning about the false circumcision to his description of the true circumcision. And in doing this, he's giving us a third thing to remember as we press on. He says, press on in joy, because Christ is worth it. Press on in wariness, because Christ is worth it. And then he says, press on in truth, because Christ is worth it. There are some who don't believe that. There are some who think we should not discern between truth and error. And we should not call out error when we see it, because, you know, that's not nice. Even while Paul calls the opponents of the gospel dogs. That's not nice, but it's true. And truth needs to be declared. And so Paul makes this distinction between those of whom we need to be wary and the truth. We, he says, are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul insists that the only people who can truly claim the coveted title of circumcision, that is, the only ones who really belong to God's gracious covenant, are those who have ceased striving. 
They have ceased boasting in their own efforts. But they worship by the Spirit of God and they glory in Christ Jesus and they put no confidence in the flesh. That's the true circumcision. No matter what may have been done to your body when you were an infant. That's just another of Paul's many ways of describing the gospel. He actually is building on the Old Testament's teaching that physical circumcision was not just a physical act. Instead, it symbolized what God, by his sovereign grace, accomplishes in the hearts of his true people. The removal of the defilement of sin, which only God can accomplish. The prophets repeatedly spoke about this. They spoke about the work of God in removing the heart of flesh and replacing it with a heart of uh, with uh, removing the heart of stone rather and replacing it with a heart of flesh Paul had informed the Romans that real circumcision was a matter of the heart performed by the spirit when the spirit of god has performed that kind of heart transplant within you what's the result your response is to glory no longer in yourself But you glory, you boast in Christ Jesus. Rather than taking pride in you and your accomplishments, you see them for what they really are, and you begin to treasure Jesus. Unlike the false circumcision, the true circumcision no longer rests our confidence in our intelligence, our influence, our ethnic heritage, our ethical efforts. Instead, we gladly heed Scripture's summons. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And rather than boasting in ourselves, we now boast only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to us and us to the world. Instead of boasting, we no longer put confidence in the flesh. And why should we put no confidence in the flesh? Because compared to Christ, everything else is dung. So Paul tells us that we ought to follow his example. And that's the fourth fourth thing that Paul tells us about pressing on. We are to press on in imitation because Jesus is worth it. Specifically, in imitation of Paul himself. You look at verses 4 through 11, and Paul is speaking about who he is and who he was and what has changed. Scripture is full of examples, both good and bad. We're given examples that we should avoid emulating and examples that we should ever hold before us. And ultimately, our greatest example, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is for us that unattainable ideal. One day we will be like him because we will see him face to face, but until then, we have other examples that are a little bit closer to who we think we are. And we ought to follow those good examples, both living and dead. Here in Philippians 3, Paul sets himself forth as an example for us to follow. He is an example of the true circumcision. 
He's an example of one who has cast off all that the false circumcision thought was valuable. And Paul did that, he says, because as valuable as he once considered those things to be, Christ is better. And he does not hesitate to cast away everything that he used to value because he has found that Christ is worth it. And so you read verses 4 through 6, Paul says, Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. And all the things that Paul mentions here had been true of him. They are things which the Judaizers treasured above all else. Paul was circumcised, and he was circumcised properly on the eighth day like you're supposed to be. He had all his credentials. He had his citizenship papers proving that he was a citizen of Israel. And if you looked him up on Ancestry.com, you would have found he was of the tribe of Benjamin. You could not be more of a Hebrew than Paul. And he didn't do things halfway. When it came to the law, he belonged to the sect which took the law more seriously than anyone else. He was a Pharisee. He was so zealous that he would travel far and wide to persecute those he believed to be heretical. Paul was a first century inquisitor. And everyone who looked at his life would have reached the same conclusion, blameless. But, but something had changed. Paul met Jesus, and everything changed. Suddenly, that which guaranteed him a life of honor and prosperity and respect and high position within Judaism meant nothing And so he goes on in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ." And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." And so here Paul exposes his fundamental values. On one side stands everything the world has to offer, including the privileged world of learned, disciplined Judaism. On the other side stands Jesus and the righteousness that comes from God that is by faith. And Paul insists that there is no contest when you're comparing these things. No contest at all. Jesus and the righteousness from God that Jesus secures are incomparably better than anything that the world has to offer. 
This righteousness from God is set over against whatever Paul could achieve on his own by observing the law, over against, as he puts it, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. As far as Paul is concerned, this righteousness that he has received, this Christ he has come to know, is so valuable that everything else is dung in comparison. Because as you probably know, that's what the word rubbish means. Paul understands that justification is God's work. It is secured by Christ's death. It is appropriated by faith. God looks at me through the death of his son, and he declares me just as I come to trust in Jesus. Paul recognizes that in God's universe... This is the most important thing of all, to know God through Jesus Christ. It is infinitely more important than having all of the laurels in the world, whether ecclesiastical or academic or societal or financial or personal, since that righteousness from God depends absolutely upon gaining Christ and being found in him. Paul wants it above all else. Everything else is as dung in comparison. Everything else is waste. And that being the case, Paul is perfectly content except for one thing. We often talk about the need to be content in our circumstances. But there is one thing with which we ought never be content. We ought never be content with our present knowledge of the Savior. Paul says elsewhere, he's learned to be content in all circumstances, rich, poor, whatever the case may be. But he's not content when it comes to his relationship with Christ. He wants more of Jesus. He doesn't want more stuff. He wants more Jesus. This is what he says in verses 10 and 11, of course, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And I want to ask you this morning, are you imitating Paul in that way? Do you have continually a holy discontent with your relationship with Jesus? Are you always desiring more of him, to know him? Not know about him, but to know him. Now, knowing him flows from knowing about him. There's got to be that content. You've got to understand what God has said about Jesus in his word. But that's not enough simply to know about him. There are plenty of people who know about Jesus that are going to spend eternity in hell. We need to know about Jesus so that we know him relationally. And that's the hunger within the heart of God's people. Always desiring more. Be content in everything else. Understand the sovereignty of God is working itself out in your life. 
and be content with where God places you and serve him there and be faithful to him there. But don't be content with your present knowledge of Jesus, with your present relationship with the Savior. Now here's where Paul takes us next. We're not only to press on in imitation of Paul as it regards the past, but we're also to press on in expectation of the future because Jesus is worth it. Remember to press on in expectation. Now, obviously, when we talk about expectation, we're talking about the future. You can't expect the past. The past is done. We expect that which is yet to happen. And why is Paul concerned with the future? It's because of the desire that he's just mentioned. His desire to know Christ is such that he feels quite intensely the imperfect nature of his present knowledge of the Savior. He knows he has not yet attained the knowledge of Jesus that he desires. Now watch this, because this is where Paul tells us what he means when he talks about knowing Christ. Paul says that he has not yet obtained it. Verse 12, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says that he has not yet obtained it, that is, a full knowledge of Christ, nor has he yet become perfect. And what's happening there, which is a little bit difficult to see in the translation, is that Paul is equating those things. The more deeply he comes to know Christ, the more fully perfect he will be. And that's his desire. I hope that's your desire. I hope life in this world and the struggles with sin that we each endure... I hope that grieves you. I hope that you live in the expectation of what is yet to come. When we will fully know the Savior because we will be like him. I hope when you turn on the television, when you look at the computer, when you hear about everything that's going on in the world, I hope it grieves you. I hope when you see the grief and the sin and the evil and the wickedness and the violence of the world, you're not just responding to it by saying, well, that's just how it is. I hope that you have something within you that says, I can't wait for this to be over. I feel that way when I look at myself. When I see my own sin, 
When I struggle with my own heart, I long for that day when this won't be an issue anymore. When I will know Jesus so perfectly that I will become perfect as he has promised I will be. This is what Paul wants to lay hold of. The more deeply he comes to know Christ, the more he understands he will become like Christ, and he's looking forward to that day when it will all be perfect, when we will live together with Jesus in the new creation. That last line of verse 12 is reminiscent of what Paul writes to the Ephesians in, verses, in Ephesians 1.4. Here in verse 12, he says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.4, where Paul says that God has chosen us before the foundations of the world so that we would be holy and blameless in him. He's saying the same thing. We were chosen to be perfect. We're not there yet. In order to be perfect, we have to know Christ perfectly, and we don't. But we ought to desire that, and we ought to look forward to that day when we will. Because that day, brothers and sisters, is coming. And it will be a glorious day. And every one of us should be so loosely tied to this world that we can say with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Paul says he has not obtained that perfection yet. And so Paul is going to forget what lies behind. He's going to reach forward to what lies ahead. And he's going to press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, what is that prize? What is that upward call? Paul's already told us. It is knowing Christ so intimately that it results in our perfection. That's the goal. That's the prize. And that is yet future. Paul knows he hasn't laid hold of it yet. This is why Paul can refer to himself as the chief of sinners. And if we know ourselves... We would want to argue with him about that. He hasn't laid hold of it yet. And so he does one thing, one thing. His life is focused singularly on this. Leaving behind what has already occurred. Leaving behind the past that you cannot change, that you can do nothing about. And reaching forward. To what awaits. Reaching forward to what lies ahead. This is Paul's singular passion. To know Christ. This goal is the full knowledge of Christ. And the full likeness of him. Paul understands he's never going to fully reach this goal in his lifetime. But nevertheless he is pressing on towards the prize. And that's how he views it. It's a prize. Scripture refers to it elsewhere as an inheritance. This is the great blessing that God is going to give to his people. He is going to make us like his son. And as with any race, the prize is received at the end of the race, not during the race. They don't come out in the middle of the race and give you a trophy. Well, you, you had a good start. There you go. 
It comes at the end. When we cross the finish line, that line between this life and heaven, it's then that we receive the prize. It is then that we will know Christ in all of his glory. It's then that we will fully know him whom we have treasured. Brothers and sisters, treasure Jesus. Treasuring Jesus, press on. And press on in all the ways that Paul has encouraged us to press on. Press on through suffering. Press on through trials. Press on through sacrifice. Press on until that great and final day when we will take hold of that prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Father, bring it to pass. Father, make this the desire of the hearts of each and every one here this morning. That we live in the anticipation of what awaits. That we hunger, Father, day by day, moment by moment, for more of Jesus. Father, by your Spirit who indwells us, cause us to press on until the end. For our good and for your glory, we ask it. Amen.